You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So today we have a special guest and one in which I am honored to have on the podcast. Our guest today is Congresswoman Virginia Fox. Now, Congresswoman Fox represents North Carolina's 5th District in the U.S. House of Representatives. And for those of you outside of North Carolina, she currently serves as the chairwoman of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. You should know that Congresswoman Fox has an extensive background, so I'm just going to hit some of the highlights here, but leave a link to her full bio under the audio portion of this episode. Prior to serving on Capitol Hill, Chairwoman Fox spent 10 years in the North Carolina Senate, where she consistently voted against tax increases and for legislation that would make governments more efficient and less wasteful. Chairwoman Fox is also a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she received her A.B. degree in English, a master's degree in sociology, and she also received her doctorate of education from the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. Now, I've watched the Congresswoman over the years and have always found her to be a tough interrogator with witnesses before her committee. She's also been a a staunch fighter for workers' individual rights against the political machinations of today's unions, which is why I wanted to have her on the podcast for quite a while now. So without further ado, here's Chairwoman Virginia Fox. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Dr. Fox, it is an honor and privilege to welcome you to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I am doing great. Thank you. So I know our time is limited, and you're just getting back to D.C., so I know your plate is probably full. But I thought perhaps if we have the time, we could cover a few topics that you're kind of in the, in the heat of the things. And from Julie Sue is the permanent acting secretary of labor. Correct. And, and uh, the independent contractor issue that I believe their rules are coming out shortly as well as a topic that a lot of people are paying attention to, maybe not so much anymore, but the the salting that is going on, the union salting that is going on with a number of employers across the country. And then most recently, there's a letter that the Office of the Inspector General just released on the NLRB's mismanagement. So of those things, what do you prefer to talk about first? Well, uh, whatever you prefer to talk about, we certainly have a lot that we can say about the Department of Labor and all of those issues. Well, as I understand it, we have a acting Secretary of Labor that is kind of like in a quasi-permanent role now because the Senate is not confirming her. That's correct. Um, they, they They know they don't have the votes in the Senate, and so they gave up on trying to do that, and they're just ignoring the traditions and what we think is the rule on this that she should not be continuing in that role not without having been voted on by the senate 
So what that's doing is depriving Congress of its role in providing advice and consent on nominees. So sort of here's the timeline. On July 2023, Julie Sue became the longest pending cabinet nominee when the same party controlled the White House and the Senate on record. The press has dubbed Sue Biden's forever nominee. Uh, they're continuing to break all the wrong records with Julie Sue. Uh, we think that Biden should have the conscience to pull her, but we know that's not going to happen. I begin to think they don't have a conscience at all in this administration. So is it possible that they just leave her in there permanently? It is possible, and I think very probable that they will do that unless something unusual happens. You know, what this is is, the administration is really anti-worker. And Biden says that he's the most pro-union work uh, president, and he is, there's no question, he's the most pro-union worker. And he wants that to translate into pro-worker. He's pro-union, but not pro-worker, because he puts anti-worker bureaucrats into power. Julie Sue is not a pro-worker bureaucrat. She's an anti-worker bureaucrat, and I think we'll talk some more about that in a few minutes. Well, that kind of that goes to some of her record as um, Secretary of Labor of California. I'm not sure it's called Secretary out there, but the you know she headed up the Labor Department for California, and I've had a number of guests on the podcast who are independent contractors. And many of them uh, have been from California. AB5 was Lorena Gonzalez's brainchild, Teamster official turned state, dem, uh, state official or legislator. And Julie Sue was part of implementing AB5, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and I'm sorry, and go that, ahead. Yeah, well, we know that that's, that is the most glaring example of the Democrats attack on the independent contractor model. And again, that's a very anti-worker position. You know, my father was a, an independent contractor. He did paper hanging and wallpaper, I mean, um, painting and all kinds of odd jobs. And so I come from a family of independent contractors. And most of the time when you live in the rural areas, that's what you have are one or two people running a business. My daughter is an independent contractor. She runs our nursery and landscaping business. So I am a huge proponent of people being able to make that decision for their lifestyle and their work. But what the president wants to do and what Julie Sue wants to do is control people even at the, at, at the micro level. They do not want independent contractors to be allowed to operate. They want people to be part of a big business and then be unionized. So it all boiled down again to the focus on promoting unions. So she, she want, would want to do that at the federal level. And people can see what happened in California on this. It got so bad 
with the backlash from various professionals uh, that that the California legislature had to exempt 100 different professions from the AB5 law. Well, a lot more wanted to be exempt from it, but couldn't, couldn't put the pressure on the legislature to do that. This is wrong. We, this is a free country, as we point out all the time. People should be able to work in the manner in which they wish to work and not be told what to do by the federal government. So you just hit on something, and I've been asking this repeatedly. California, as you just mentioned, when they enacted AB5, they had to go back and rewrite the legislation to exempt all of these different professions. Mike, and of course, Julie Sue is a proponent of the PRO Act, as is President Biden, Correct. which eliminates independent contractors effectively. My question for you, and you are the perfect person to ask because you are at the federal level, if a bill like the PRO Act were ever to be enacted nationally and eliminate the independent contractor status of millions of Americans, is there a way that the the federal legislation, like, could you go back and then exempt all these other professions? Well, you could obviously do that in the legislation, but... Um, it would be a crazy kind of thing. It'd be an admission of the fact that the legislation is bad to begin with. And um, they've tried very hard to get the bill passed out of Congress. It actually did pass out of the House uh, three years ago, maybe. I, I lose track of time. But it did pass out of the House at one point but they could never get a hearing for it in the Senate. Even though the, the Senate has been controlled by the Democrats, they couldn't, get, they couldn't bring it up for a vote, just like they couldn't bring Julie Sue's nomination up for a vote because there just aren't the votes for it in the Senate. So I continue to be hopeful that that bill will never pass. If the, Repo if the Democrats get in control of the House again, I think they can pass it out of the House, but I just don't believe it will become law anytime soon. At least I pray it will not become law anytime soon. Well, it's wiping out, aside from all the union components in there with mandatory arbitration, and that's one of the big ones that doesn't get talked about a lot, but you're basically putting a federal bureaucracy or arbitrators that are appointed by the federal government dictating wages and benefits on countless businesses so that you know that's a component of the pro act that's poisonous as well but then i kind of go back to this whole independent contractor model and i i just don't see how at the federal level you'd be able to carve out all these different exemptions from the independent contractors it's i well it wouldn't wouldn't be easy to do i don't think but again no We've seen people write legislation very, very cleverly. Uh, let, let me uh, point out something that's in the PRO Act that I used to talk about a lot when the Act was around. Uh, it won't be around in the House during a Republican majority. But what I think your listeners need to know, and, and I haven't looked at the bill in a while, so I'll admit that, but this was, to me, one of the worst pieces of the legislation. 
The union pension plans are all in trouble. They are all in trouble. They eventually are all going to go bankrupt because the unions refuse to put enough money in and they don't require employees to put enough money in to keep them going. So as a part of the PRO Act, which would just make people drop their mouth open when I would tell them, would, would loan to the unions enough money for the next 29 years to make the payments on their union obligations for pensions. They would loan the money, we, the taxpayers, would loan the money to the unions at a rate to be set by a board controlled by the unions. I used to joke and say probably an interest rate of one or two percent, but even that didn't matter because at the end of 29 years, if the unions couldn't pay back what the taxpayers had given them, the loan was forgiven. So it was a joke, mm. an absolute joke. All it did was transfer to the American people the obligations to pay the union pensions to union members. Well, we just we're in the midst of giving away, I think it was ninety billion dollars that was in the American rescue package. Right. That That's is right. going to the under the heavily underfunded plans as well. That's I right. Think, I think so far we've given fifty-five billion of that ninety billion out as That's taxpayers. Correct. A lot of people don't realize that is coming from the taxpayers. Absolutely. Everything that gets spent at the federal level comes from taxpayers or right. is borrowed. Right. or is borrowed eventually to be paid for the taxpayers. So I get very upset when I hear people say federal government money or government money. I, I always, I did this when I was in the state senate. I would jump up when people would say that and say, no, that's taxpayer money, hardworking taxpayer money paid into the federal government, and then some of it given back to those taxpayers after there's a bunch skimmed off for bureaucrats. If you've got enough lobbying pressure in your in your particular lobby, you can get some of your money back. Correct. Correct. So I know that you've been fairly vocal. I, I enjoy watching you, and it's usually when, of course, the Republicans are in the majority and, and you're chairwoman of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. That's when I get to see you the most but I've watched you for years and I know you've been fairly vocal on the national labor relations board and it's, I don't know if you want to call it misconduct or mismanagement. There's a report that came out last week from the office of the inspector general. And it was about how the NLRB officials, and I think it was in two regions messed up or, were biased towards the union trying to unionize the Starbucks workers. They had bungled a couple of elections, I believe. Oh, absolutely. So um, in March, we issued a subpoena to a whistleblower, uh, an assistant to the regional director for Region 15, the National Labor Relations Board, after she sounded the alarm about NLRB officials engaging in misconduct and failing to conduct fair and impartial elections. 
we had a pretty good idea that this was going on, but uh, we were really, really blessed to have the whistleblower. She provided the committee with more than 500 pages of information that shows oh. questionable actions and misconduct by NLRB officials. So then we, the committee expanded the scope of the investigation after combing through the documents provided by the whistleblower. By the way, we have fantastic staff on the Education and Workforce Committee. They, they have background in these areas and they do a, a great job. So what we discovered were dozens of instances of misconduct related to the NLRB's use of mail ballots in representation election cases. Then separate from the committee's investigation, the NLRB Inspector General David Berry conducted an investigation into a mail ballot election in Region 14. So we're talking about two different regions. His findings pointed to gross misconduct by NLRB officials. Here's what he found. Two major areas. One, the committee's ongoing investigation into the NLRB is justified. Two, the committee and IG Barry are rowing in the same direction to root out mismanagement and misconduct at the NLRB. Now, the NLRB was established to function as an impartial agency that conducts representation elections and adjudications disputes under the National Labor Relations Act. It is not supposed to act as a rogue organization that puts its thumb on the scale to sway politically motivated outcomes. But that's exactly what it's been doing. And I, will let, I have let the NLRB know that the committee is going to continue to follow the facts and hold the NLRB accountable. We have, again, the most pro-union NLRB that we've ever had in the country to go along with the most pro-union president that we have. So let me ask you, when you say we're going to hold the NLRB accountable, what can Congress do or what can the committee do to do that? Well, we can continue to bring forth these the, this information and put pressure on the president on these things and hopefully get some traction out of the Senate, too, with it. Um, I'm not sure these are presidential appointments. It's very difficult in the separation of powers, but we believe always in sunlight and bringing forth the facts and the truth and hoping that we will be able to make some progress in making the situation better. So one of the things that, and I've, I've been around long enough to recall the NLRB from the Reagan administration to the Bush one administration to the Clinton board, then the Bush two board, I may be missing one in there, Obama board. And now, you know, then I went back to uh, the Trump board and now, and now the uh, Biden board. So one of the things I've noticed doing labor relations is the pendulum swings so much. And, and I've had other conversations about this on the podcast that this pendulum having swung far to the, shall we say, left, 
is probably the farthest I've seen in 40 years of doing this. And it seems as though from a, and I don't care if you're on the union side or management side, these swings are hard to manage your business, if you will, regardless of what side you're on. And is there, I don't know if there's a way in which Congress can kind of rein in the swings. I don't know, but it's, it's one that I hear about a lot, especially today. It is difficult when you've got a five-member board and three are generally going to be uh, there because of the president. And if you've got somebody like Joe Biden and they control it. Now, occasionally the way the terms are, and I think we did have for a period of time three Republicans, even under Biden, until terms ran out and people resigned. So I don't know how we could how we could do it. And that's why I do think it's important that we expose the bad things that the board does. Even if we can't remove somebody from the board, we can at least put out there what is happening. And I I think that's important to do. Sunshine is the best disinfectant. Well, you know, one of the things I recall from the Trump board when there were three members, the unions actually hammered on one of the Republican members because his former law firm represented one of the cases I think he was he was uh, ruling on and this whole conflict of interest issue and, and recusal. But yet now you've got two members of the board who came from the Service Employees International Union right. who are refusing to recuse themselves. And and the hypocrisy, and this goes, I remember when Craig Becker came from the SEIU and he said he would recuse himself and never did back in the Obama years. And it's it's just fascinating to watch it go back and forth like that and some of the hypocrisy there. Listen, you only have to look for a couple of minutes at anything going on in the Biden administration and see hypocrisy. It's there every day. Every single day in everything almost that they do. They are just rampant hypocrites. I've been saying this for a long time. It was true under the Obama administration, too. Terrible hypocrites. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that you've been pretty diligent on is the whole issue of union salts out there with the, and I think it might have been, some of our research at Labor Union News that brought to light the $2.5 million that Workers United had spent on organizing at Starbucks. But I know you had one of your witnesses that apparently didn't tell you that she was actually being paid by the union. You're correct. And by the way, thank you for the work that you do. Again, I know our staff stays on top of what you're doing, uh, and we try to do that with everybody else. You know, while we have a fantastic staff, it's not that large. And so we can't do everything ourselves. And we do rely on folks like you to help us uncover information that is useful to us. And that w- you bring things to the people's attention. We, ha- we have to hope that in our hearings, in our letters, in our press releases, that we get wide coverage of this. And again, let people know they're not going to get by with doing bad things. But you're absolutely right. You all reported that Workers United paid nearly $2.5 million to organizer salts and activists at Starbucks. Now, in July, 
I sent a letter to Workers United International President Lynn Fox, spelled F-O-X, to request information about Michelle Eisen's employment and compensation history with the union and whether it coincided with her testifying as a Starbucks barista at a committee hearing in September 2022. That obviously was when the Democrats were still in the majority. She appeared at a hearing. So she had to fill out a form before she testified and she, it's called Truth in Testimony Form. She represented herself exclusively as a Starbucks barista. But we found out, again, because of the work you did and the work we did, that that was not the case. So we, have, we want the witnesses at hearings to present themselves honestly because information that's provided by witnesses and hearings has the potential to influence legislation and obviously it, it informs the public. Therefore, we have to have transparency. And when, when witnesses are not transparent, not forthcoming, it's not good. So what happened is workers union Work, worker United, Workers United, whew, LM2 filing with the Department of Labor revealed that the union paid her $49,734 that same year, which raised concern about the extent to which she was affiliated with the union at the time of the hearing. So we applied pressure on Workers United. It took a while to get this information from them, from through to us, and so uh, she was indeed assault for the union. They hired her as a paid organizer in February of 2022, months before she testified before the committee, and they continue to pay her to this day. So she mis misled the committee blatantly during the hearing and um, stood up for the unions, not the way it's supposed to be. Well, interestingly, and I, I think we referenced this when we posted the research we did, I think the amount that we were able to total up, which was that around 2.5 million, was the tip of the iceberg because we were only cross-checking public, either newspaper articles or other public data out there. 2023, when those numbers are released, I think is going to be much greater than we had in 2022, examining the, the uh, LMs from 2022. You know, again, I think what people need to be aware of is that there is a full-on assault in this country to make the unions dominant. Now, they don't, they represent a fairly large segment of the public employees. They haven't gone up very much in terms of the private employers. It's still only about 6% but they are making every push they possibly can under this president to, again, become dominant. They want to turn the United States into Europe when it comes to unions. It would be one of the worst things that could possibly happen in this country is for the unions to gain any more traction in this country. 
I am so opposed to it, I cannot tell you. I mentioned to you before that my father was an independent contractor a good part of his life. When we moved to North Carolina in 1959, there were very few jobs for people. He tried working there, but he couldn't make a living. And he would go back to New York City and live with his mother and father, who were still alive. They were Italian immigrants. And he would have to work for the unions a lot of times. He wasn't able to be an independent contractor in New York mm. because of the unions. It was only when he wor- was able to work in North Carolina. And he would come home and just rail about the unions, how they made them take breaks, how they took money for his dues, and all those kinds of things. He was adamantly opposed to the unions all his life. They wouldn't let people work the pace they should work. I mean, I learned early on in my life the horrors of the unions. And I call them horrors because it's not a good way to be. There might might, might have been a need for the unions back in the 1930s, but we are long past the time that we need any unions in this country. Workers' rights are very strong in this country, and I'm happy about that, but we don't need the unions acting like they're the ones responsible for those workers' rights. Those workers' rights have come about because of the consciences of legislators, at the state and federal level. Well, yeah, one of my grad uh, my my graduating paper from college was actually on the decline of unions and what caused that. And it's interesting if you watch the rise of worker protection laws within state and federal levels, it kind of coincides with the decline of unions. And a lot of workers get it today in that you don't really need a union to protect you for safety reasons or you know, family medical leave because it's all been enacted. So now yeah. they're left with wages and maybe benefits to negotiate over. But, you know, and we're seeing some uptick in union activity, of course, but it's not, I don't know how sustainable it is unless the government's involved. I agree. And I think um, hopefully we will have a new uh, Republican president in 2024 come into office in 2025 and we will see this reverse itself. We will not advance as a country and as an economic power with the unions um, more in control. And by the way, we've talked nothing at all today about the corruption of the unions and the union bosses. And I try always in my conversations and, and when I speak to lambast the union bosses, not individual workers, I think they've been sold a bill of goods, and I'm not going to say they're innocent, but I think they get sold a bill of goods about what the union does for them, and they then think the unions are why they are prospering. It's not the unions. Well, it's interesting. If you've been watching the news over the last month with the UAW strike against the Detroit Three, it's... It's almost as though the media has completely forgotten that the United Auto Workers has been under a cloud of corruption for the last almost 10 years. Oh, absolutely. And many of them were convicted of yeah. corruption. Yeah. And it, it, you're exactly right. The media doesn't remember that. 
and doesn't talk about it. And the, every article that comes out, uh, quoting Sean Payne, should say, wonder when we're going to understand his corruption. Yeah, it's, he's an interesting fellow that I've been kind of watching for the last month or two. And it's, you know, he came off the factory floor. He only won by like 500 votes. And I think the UAW turnout was, I want to say it was like 10% of the UAW members actually voted in that presidential election or the rerun. And, you know, he is now a media star, similar to Sean O'Brien at the Teamsters. And it's, it's again, I've got the the longevity of having been in this career for close to 40 years, and it's been fascinating to watch over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think he very much loved being a media star. Yeah, yeah, yep. And it's it's a different world that we're in now. It's almost going back to the 30s and 40s where you've got these uh, union presidents coming on like the old John L. Lewis or Walter Ruther or whomever. It'll be interesting to see if Mr. O'Brien is more like Jimmy Hoffa than a reformer like Ron Carey. But in right. any case, Representative Fox, I have taken up, I think, our allotted time, and I really appreciate you coming on Labor Relations Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me to come on, and hope you'll invite us again. I would um, certainly love to. Anytime you're available, I would love to have you on. Thank right, you we'll so see, much. See what we can work out. God bless you uh, for right. the work that you're doing. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. So that was Congresswoman Virginia Fox, chairwoman of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. And if you've never watched her query one of the committee's witnesses, you're missing a treat. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. And if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter or the app called X, formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.